Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 193. Today's big Bible question, how must Christians handle conflict with each other? So, hello, friends. Happy Wednesday to you. You know, Wednesdays are far and away the best days of the week, right? I mean, everybody knows that Wednesdays are at least 27% better than every other day, and especially better than stupid Saturdays, right? I mean, am I right? What? I, I can't hear you. Well, you disagree? Oh, it appears that we have found ourselves in the midst of a fight and the podcast is barely one minute in. How can you be that stubborn? What can we do to resolve this conflict that you obviously started? Well, look, everybody fights and argues, even Christians and even Christians who are pastors. My own dear wife, who is a lovely person that pretty much everybody likes and probably likes more than they like me, we fight too. Sometimes it's my fault. Sometimes it's her fault. Sometimes it's neither one of our faults. And honestly, most of the time, it's some my fault and some her fault. But most human relationships will be punctuated with conflict from time to time because we're all still sinners and because, as the Bible says, the tongue is a restless evil that is nearly impossible to tame. As a pastor with 20-something years of experience and uh, 40-something years of age under my belt, I still find my stupid tongue gets me in trouble so often because I haven't tamed it properly yet. Most people think conflict and arguments are all about who's right and who's wrong. But the older you live, the more you realize that conflict where one person is almost completely right and the other person is almost completely wrong, those kind of conflicts are exceedingly rare. Not unheard of, but maybe a little rarer than a unicorn. Okay, maybe a little rarer than an albino horse. I don't know. There's just not a lot of them. Most arguments among Christians are more like the one that Paul's friends Yodia and Syntyche experienced. Notice what he tells these two wonderful ladies, co-workers in the gospel who are obviously in conflict with each other. He writes them a letter in the Bible, Philippians 4, uh, verse 2, which says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. Oh, well, hold on, Paul. Which one was right? Who should win the argument? Are you Team Yodia or Team Syntyche? And Paul says, look, just agree in the Lord. That's kind of interesting. Sometimes it's pretty hard to agree, isn't it? Especially in an instant where somebody has genuinely wronged you, like you guys did with me earlier when you didn't agree with me that Wednesday was the best day by far. Well, what does Jesus command us to do when somebody in the church or in the faith has wronged us? Should we post about it on Instagram? Should we subtweet them on Twitter without using their name? But, you know, everybody knows we're talking about them. Should we text all of our friends so that they can be on our side? Well, maybe we should complain and mope and just get angry and give them the silent treatment. No, actually, none of those are acceptable. Well, let's go read what Jesus has to say about peacemaking and forgiveness in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell fire. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones, because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the ninety-nine on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if you won't listen, take two or three others with you I'm sorry, take one or two others with you, that's important, one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, I truly tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray about, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter approached him and said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents, which is a ton of money in the old times, was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell down before him and said, Be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and started choking him and say, Pay what you owe me! At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me. I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into the prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or his sister from your heart.
Whoa, mama, that's some heavy stuff right there, right? Jesus says that those who don't forgive from the heart will receive tormenting punishment from God. Now, wait a minute. I hear you saying, that's not fair. Somebody hurt me. I'm the one in trouble if I don't forgive them. Yes, that's exactly correct. A hundred percent correct. You might be saying that, why? And part of the answer of the why to that, I believe, is even if in this one particular case you were the, quote, good guy who did no wrong, I assure you that you've been the bad guy just as often, if not more, and unforgiveness is a terrible and and egregious sin in the eyes of the Father. So how do we know it's bad? Well, right here, Jesus says the Father will torment those who don't forgive. That's bad. Elsewhere, he says that those who refuse to forgive will not be forgiven themselves. Well, why is it so bad? Well, because we are the ungracious servant in Jesus's Matthew 18 parable when we refuse to forgive somebody for harming us. How dare we hold somebody accountable for sinning against us, refusing to forgive them when God has forgiven us a billion times as much? Now, I will note here, there are rare occasions, but they happen where somebody has not sinned a 100 denarii worth against us, but a few thousand or more denarii worth of sin against us. In other words, somebody has not merely hurt us a little bit, but perhaps a great amount. I'll never forget when I was a college professor a few years ago teaching in class. Um, my students knew I was a pastor. One of them just all of a sudden one day raised her hand. I thought she had a question. She just started telling her life story. And she was a great student, so I let her continue. And basically her life story boiled down to this. Her father, who was a pastor, had molested and abused her for years, which ultimately led to her becoming a drug addict and going to jail. And it was a terrible story. Her father was an absolute monster. How do you forgive some? body like that in that sort of situation. And I will say this, I think even in that place, forgiveness is appropriate eventually, but counseling is much needed in a situation like that. And there needs to be this understanding. God does not let brutal acts of molestation, abuse, and trauma go unpunished. Vengeance is his. When we don't forgive somebody, we're sort of taking the whole I'm going to punish you thing into our hands. And that sweet, precious student of mine did not have the ability to punish her father adequately for the years of abuse she had suffered under his hand. And if she tried to punish him adequately for those years of abuse, it would have taken her years of abuse to give to her father, and it would have twisted her, because abuse twists us when we give it. So vengeance is the Lord's. That man will pay a heavy heavy, horrible price for his horrific misdeeds. But we should still forgive each other, knowing that molestation, abuse, trauma, etc. does not go unpunished by God. Vengeance is his. So in most conflicts, let's call them your typical average everyday conflicts, the ones where we participate just as often as we uh, suffer from those. When conflict happens, any kind of conflict, just to be clear, any kind of conflict among Christians, Jesus gives us an outline for peacemaking 
in Matthew chapter 18. Step one is to privately talk to the person and let them know of their fault. Now, I think if somebody is being abused here, that it is perfectly appropriate to not privately talk to the abuser in that situation. I know that there's not a loophole for that sort of thing written into scripture, but we learned a couple of days ago that Jesus called his disciples to shrewdness. I think in terms of of physical abuse with an abuser, that it is certainly appropriate to tell to take one or many people along with you in that situation and call law enforcement first. But in conflicts of this type that Jesus is talking about, step one is to privately talk to the person and let them know of their fault. Now, a few keys here. It needs to be private, one-on-one, not after you've whispered about it to somebody else, first to them. The point here is that nobody else needs to know about the sin but you and that person. Now, that's likely how, if you'd hurt somebody sinfully, it's likely how you would want to be to be treated also. You wouldn't want everybody to know about your sin. Also important here, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. I believe the key word there is sin. In order to tell your brother their fault, you probably should be able to show from Scripture how they've sinned. Did they say something non-sinfully that hurt your feelings? Perhaps it was a misunderstanding or a mistake. Show grace and talk about it, but save Matthew 18 peacemaking for when somebody has hurt you by sinning against you. Lies, you know, slander, false accusations, etc. What should your attitude be in such a conversation, a Matthew 18 conversation? Well, I think Paul helps us here. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, he says this, If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter... Take note of that person. Don't associate him with him so that he will feel ashamed. He may be ashamed, yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In Galatians 6.1, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so so that you also won't be tempted. So gentle spirit. A good attitude, treating somebody as a brother, not getting all up in their face for sinning against you. Gentle spirit. Step two is to take, if step one doesn't work, is to take one or two, not more than that, others and have them help with the situation. This doesn't necessarily have to be a confrontation. It should be a peacekeeping mission. Now, step three, if all else in the previous step fails, is to tell the whole church about the sin. Now, I believe that assumes that the person that has sinned is unrepentant. And like we discussed yesterday, unrepentant sin is dangerous. All situations are not guaranteed to be solved by this Matthew 18 process, but this is the divinely appointed process that Jesus gives us for being in conflict. And honestly, we're not allowed to handle conflict in other ways as his followers. Now, one other thing. At the end, Jesus says, if those steps don't work, treat the person that sinned against you as a pagan or tax collector. Well, what in the world does that mean to treat somebody as a pagan or tax collector? Does that mean to shun them, to spit on them, to put them out of the church? Well, it's it's a fantastic question, and I actually love Tim Keller's answer to it, which I heard years ago, and this is what he says. What does it mean to treat someone as a pagan and a tax collector? It sounds terrible till you realize exactly how Jesus treated pagans and tax collectors. How did he treat them? He loved them, 
but he knew they were spiritually clueless. I remember this years ago, and he's preaching to his church. He says, not in this church, by the way. I wrote a letter after one of these processes in which the elders worked with a couple of people and neither of them would reconcile to each other. We removed both of them from church membership, but we loved them both. Here's what I wrote. I said, you are not acting consistently with the gospel you profess to believe. We're not saying you aren't saved. We're not saying you're not a Christian, but we are removing your privileges of membership. We're going to lovingly but firmly treat you as a non-believer in the gospel till you wake up to the fact that you are acting like a non-believer in the gospel. Now, that didn't mean, says Keller, of course, to shun or be mean to them in any way. Now, some of you are saying, saying, why in the world would I, as a New Yorker, want to belong to a church like that? His church is in New York. Why would I want to put myself under authority that would do something like that to me? Why would I want to be in a church that would hold my feet to the fire like that? I myself decide what is right or wrong for me. Nobody tells me how to live my life. And Keller says, let me tell you a story. Do you remember the story of Ulysses and the sirens in Homer? Ulysses is coming back from the Trojan War, and he's in a boat. The only way home is to go by the island of the sirens. The sirens were women who sat on the rocks and sang. He's told when men heard the singing, they went mad with desire, and they would drive their ship into the rocks, and they would all die. Ulysses says, I'm the captain, therefore I'm going to keep my ears open, but I'm tying myself to the mast. Then he told all of his soldiers and sailors, they put wax in their ears so they could not hear. He said, when we get near the Isle of the Sirens, I'll probably hear the music and I'll probably go crazy. I will tell you to turn right into the rocks. I'll scream at you and I'll yell at you and I'll curse you. I'll be out of my mind. Don't listen to me. Stay on course. It's called the Ulysses Pact. He says, I know I'll be out of my mind, and I don't want you to listen to me when I'm out of my mind. I want you to stay on course and to keep me to the course I am setting for myself now. Of course, that's what happened. He got near the islands. He heard the sound. He went crazy. He screamed and cursed. He told them to turn right, and they didn't. They kept on course. Well, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3, exhort one another daily so that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, what does that mean, asks Keller? Sin is deceitful, and if you're a Christian, you know sometimes you'll be deceived by your own heart. Sometimes your ego will kick in. Sometimes your self-defense mechanisms will go up. Sometimes you'll lose perspectives and you'll just kind of be spiritually nuts. It's your job to say to your Christian brothers and sisters around you, you have a right to come and hold my feet to the fire of God's word when I'm not living the way I want to live. I will go through periods like that. And brothers and sisters, there's so much wisdom in that. Because don't we all do that? Don't we all go through times where in either one way or many ways, we are willfully, stubbornly sinning going against the word. We know we are, and we know we're off course, but we're allowing ourselves to be off course that way. That is part of what the church is for. The church is there to hold our feet to the fire of God's word. The church is there is to point us to the truth. And when we are in a conflict with somebody else, and we will not let go of the conflict, but we will unrepentantly keep going forward in it. We need people who will hold our feet to the fire and say, well, if you're not going to act like a Christian, we're going to treat you like you're not a Christian until you begin acting like a Christian again. So Jesus isn't telling people to 
shun those who aren't liking Christians. He's telling them to treat those people like non-Christians, to gospel them, to share the word with them, to exhort them and love them, but to acknowledge that they've lost the privilege of being called a member of God's church until they begin to biblically act like a member of God's church. I think that's what Jesus is driving at in Matthew 18. Well, let's keep reading and go to Joshua chapter 10, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now the king Adani Zedek of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had captured Ai and completely destroyed it, beating Ai and its king as he had Jericho and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were living among them. So Adani Zedek and his people were greatly alarmed because Gibeon was a large city like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai and all its men were warriors. Therefore, King Adani Zedek of Jerusalem sent word to King Hoham of Hebron, King Piram of Jarmuth, King Japhia of Lachish, and King Debir of Eglon, saying, Come up and help me. We will attack Gibeon because they have made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. So the five Amorite kings, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces, advanced with their armies, besieged Gibeon, and fought against it. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Don't give up on your servants. Come quickly and save us. Help us, for all the Amorite kings living in the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua and all his troops, including all his best soldiers, came from Gilgal. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. So Joshua caught them by surprise. After marching all night from Gilgal, the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them through the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azaka and Makeda. As they fled before Israel, the Lord threw large hailstones in them on them from the sky along the descent of Beth Horon all the way to Azekah, and they died. More of them died from the hail than the Israelites killed with a sword. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon over the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man because the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Now the five defeated kings had fled and hidden in the cave of Makeda. And it was reported to Joshua, the five kings have been found. They are hiding in the cave at Makeda. Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and station men by it to guard the kings. But as for the rest of you, don't stay there. Pursue your enemies and attack them from behind. Don't let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has handed them over to you. So Joshua and the Israelites finished inflicting a terrible slaughter on them until they were destroyed, although a few survivors ran away to the fortified cities. The people returned safely to Joshua in the camp of Makeda, and no one dared to threaten the Israelites. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the caves and bring those five kings out to me. That is what they did. 
They brought the five kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon to Joshua out of the cave. When they had brought the kings to them, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the military commanders who had accompanied him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of those kings. So the commanders came forward and put their feet on their necks, and Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do this to all the enemies you fight. After this, Joshua struck them down and executed them. He hung their bodies on five trees, and they were there until evening. At sunset, Joshua commanded that they be taken down from the trees and thrown into the cave where they were hidden. Then large stones were placed against the mouth of the cave, and the stones are still there today. On that day, Joshua captured Makeda and struck it down with a sword, including its king. He completely destroyed it and everyone in it, leaving no survivors, so he treated the king of Makeda as he had the king of Jericho. Joshua and all Israel with him crossed from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. The Lord also handed it and its king over to Israel. He struck it down, putting everyone in it to the sword and left no survivors in it. He treated Libna's king as he had the king of Jericho. From Libna, Joshua and all Israel with him crossed to Lachish. They laid siege to it and attacked it. The Lord handed Lachish over to Israel, and Joshua captured it on the second day. He struck it down, putting everyone in it to the sword, just as he had done to Libna. At that time, King Horam of Gezer went to help Lachish, but Joshua struck him down along with his people, leaving no survivors. Then Joshua crossed from Lachish to Eglon and all Israel with him. They laid siege to it and attacked it. On that day, they captured it and struck it down putting everyone in it to the sword. He completely destroyed it that day, just as he did to Lachish. Next, Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They captured it and struck down its king, all its villages, and everyone in it with the sword. He left no survivors, just as he had done at Eglon. He completely destroyed Hebron and everyone in it. Finally, Joshua turned towards Debir and attacked it, and all Israel was with him. He captured it, its king, and all its villages. They struck them down with the sword and completely destroyed everyone in it, leaving no survivors. He treated Debir and its king as he had treated Hebron, and as he had treated Lipna and its king. So Joshua conquered the whole region, the hill country, the Negev, the Judean foothills, and the slopes with all their kings, leaving no survivors. He completely destroyed every human being, every living being, as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua conquered everyone from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and all the land of Goshen as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all these kings in their land in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Psalm chapter 142 verse 1. I cry aloud to the Lord, I plead aloud to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him, I reveal my trouble to him. Although my spirit is weak within me, you know my way. Along this path I travel, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, no one stands up for me. There is no refuge for me, no one cares about me. I cry to you, Lord, I say you are my shelter, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am very weak. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Flee me from, free me from prison so that I can praise your name. The righteous will gather around me because you deal generously with me. Psalm 143 verse 1. 
Lord, hear my prayer. In your faithfulness, listen to my plea, and in your righteousness, answer me. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one alive is righteous in your sight. For the enemy has pursued me, crushing me to the ground, making me live in darkness like those long dead. My spirit is weak within me. My heart is overcome with dismay. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you have done. I reflect on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. I am like parched land before you, Selah. Answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Don't hide your face from me, or I will be like those going down to the pit. Let me experience your faithful love in the morning, for I trust in you. Reveal to me the way I should go, because I appeal to you. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord. I come to you for protection. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, Lord, let me live in your righteousness. Deliver me from trouble and in your faithful love destroy my enemies. Wipe out all those who attack me, for I am your servant. Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 1. If you return Israel, this is the Lord's declaration. You will return to me. If you remove your abhorrent idols from my presence and do not waver, Then you can swear as the Lord lives in truth, justice, and righteousness, and then the nations will be blessed by him and will boast in him. For this is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up the unplowed ground. Do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem, otherwise my wrath will break out like fire and burn with no one to extinguish it because of your evil deeds. Declare in Judah, proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the ram's horn throughout the land. Cry out loudly and say, assemble yourselves and let's flee to the fortified cities. Lift up a signal flag towards Zion. Run for cover. Don't stand still for I am bringing disaster from the north. A crushing blow. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his lair to make your land a waste. Your cities will be reduced to uninhabited ruins. Because of this, put on sackcloth, mourn and wail, for the Lord's burning anger has not turned away from us. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, the king and the officials will lose their courage. The priests will tremble in fear and the prophets will be scared speechless. I said, oh no God, you've certainly deceived this people in Jerusalem by announcing you will have peace while a sword is at our throats. At that time, it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a searing wind blows from the barren heights in the wilderness on the way to my dear people. It comes not to winnow or to sift. A wind too strong for this comes at my call. Now I will also pronounce judgment against them. Look, he advances like clouds. His chariots are like a storm. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. Wash the evil from your heart, Jerusalem, so that you will be delivered. How long will you harbor malicious thoughts? For a voice announces from Dan, proclaiming malice from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations, look, proclaim to Jerusalem. Those who besiege are coming from a distant land. They raise their voices against the cities of Judah. They have her surrounded like those who guard a field because she has rebelled against me. This is the Lord's declaration. 
Your way and your actions have brought this on you. This is your punishment. It is very bitter because it has reached your heart. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in agony. Oh, the pain in my heart, my heart pounds. I cannot be silent for you, my soul, have heard the sound of the ram's horn, the shout of battle. Disaster after disaster is reported because the whole land is destroyed. Suddenly my tents are destroyed, my tent curtains in a moment. How long must I see the signal flag and hear the sound of the ram's horn? For my people are fools. They do not know me. They are foolish children without understanding. They are skilled in doing what is evil, but they do not know how to do what is good. I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. I looked to the heavens and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills shook. I looked and there was no human being and all the birds of the sky had fled. I looked and the fertile field was a wilderness. All its cities were torn down because of the Lord and his burning anger. For this is what the Lord says. The whole land will be a desolation, but I will not finish it off. Because of this, the earth will mourn. The skies above will grow dark. I have spoken, I have planned, and I will not relent or turn back from it. Every city flees at the sound of the horsemen and the archer. They enter the thickets and climb among the rocks. Every city is abandoned. No inhabitant is left. And you, devastated one, what are you doing? That you dress yourself in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with gold jewelry, that you enhance your eyes with makeup. You beatify yourself for nothing. Your lovers reject you. They intend to take your life. I hear a cry like a woman in labor, a cry of anguish like one bearing her first child. The cry of daughter Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands. Woe is me, for my life is weary because of the murderers. Dear friends, may the Lord give you peace and comfort. May his word guide you and be a lamp unto your feet. Good day and Godspeed.